Welcome to the Who Knows This podcast, where I track down in the trenches experts to answer questions that we really want to know the answers to. I'm Sam Bisnick, and I'm a veteran in working with people with chronic aches and pains by the way of massage therapy, exercise, pain neuroscience education, hypnotherapy, and lifestyle coaching. Today, we're going to talk about chronic inflammation as it pertains to pain issues, what it is, and how to deal with it. So let's get started. All right, so a little bit of information about Nicole. Nicole is a seasoned clinician with a proven track record of helping thousands of clients achieve their health goals. She spent the last 12 years working in an integrative medical clinic in Santa Monica, California, developing solutions to complex conditions like chronic fatigue and functional gastrointestinal disorders. Nicole's multi-layered assessment processes identify underlying imbalances and evaluate biopsychosocial factors that influence dietary habits and overall health. She translates the information into customized nutrition and lifestyle programs that are designed to address the root causes of chief complaints. She guides and supports her clients throughout their health journey using innovative motivational strategies to increase dietary adherence and maximize results. Nicole earned her bachelor's degree in health education from Winona State University and her master's degree from the University of Bridgeport in human nutrition. She is a certified clinical nutritionist through the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. Earlier in her career, she served six years in the Air Force National Guard, managed a corporate wellness center for Honeywell Aerospace, and worked as an adjunct psychology instructor at Brown Mackey College. And her work in the military and corporations and academia, along with being a wife and mom, gives her the ability to appreciate and relate to a diverse range of clients. So, Nicole, welcome, welcome, welcome. It sounds a bit odd for those of you out here. Obviously, we are married, so I'm going to try and be as professional as possible here. And throughout the process, I will absolutely be tooting my wife's horn a whole lot because I know that she is not so likely to do so, but I'm going to do that for her. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you. (laughs) All right. Let's talk a little bit here before we kind of dive into this because I'm really excited about doing this podcast episode in particular. I get to inundate you with questions about nutrition all the time and practice guidelines and things that you do that make you successful in what you do so I can uh, transfer that knowledge to my clients and so forth. I have so many questions about this topic as well, and you're so absolutely just kind of immersed in this information, and I think everybody listening to this is going to be in for a real treat learning this information because there's so much confusion out there with nutrition. So before we kind of dive into this, Let's talk a little bit about your history and how you kind of got into the depth of nutritional knowledge and practice that you do now. How did this all start? Yes, that's a great question. So I actually began my clinical nutrition career at an integrative medical clinic in Santa Monica, California, and I was very lucky to actually start off my career with complex clients. Early on, I realized that These condition-based approaches to helping people with chronic problems, it has very limited utility. I could have two people that have the exact same condition. So let's say I have two clients that have rheumatoid arthritis, and I could give the exact same protocol, and they would have totally different effects. Some might get better, some might not at all. And so that was something that was interesting to me and made me very curious to figure out why do people respond so differently to the exact same approach? Another thing I think I realized very early on was that those that I was working with, the chronic conditions had really taken a psychological toll. 
And by the time they got to my office, they felt hopeless, broken, as though they were going to be destined to a life of suffering. And it broke my heart to see people in this position and to consider what it must be like to live like that. In large part, when I started thinking about how do I help these people, I think the most important thing that I learned is that human beings are biopsychosocial creatures that are influenced by many different inputs and that there are actually inter-individual differences between human beings. I wanted to figure out what are those differences? And I also wanted to figure out how do I help them get better more quickly? Because I know that when somebody starts to feel better, their hope is restored. And so that's kind of what launched me into going into very deep dives into some of these chronic conditions, large part gastrointestinal issues and chronic fatigue. So there's a lot of stuff in there that I want to unpack. So first of all, I mean, you started off with kind of like what we see very commonly in our fields. I see this in mine as well, which is that even when we look at research in different types of conditions, a lot of times what you end up looking at is some kind of like boilerplate, like cookie cutter based protocol for something. If you have XYZ condition, here's this prescriptive protocol and it should work all the time for everybody and so forth. We see a lot of that. Nutrition, of course, and exercise work, it's the same. If you have a rotator cuff problem, you got to do this stretch, you got to do this exercise, et cetera. And I think that probably what you've noticed, kind of uh, mind reading a little bit, is that mentioned there that when you actually start to become seasoned with this work, you start to find that that actually doesn't work so well. You just kind of have this menu of things that you're supposed to do. And, and it seems largely that a lot of practitioners out there still just kind of operate that way, especially as they're kind of like getting their toes wet in the industry. So we've got a lot of practitioners that are using these cookie cutter approaches and it doesn't seem to get the job done. Yeah. That's true. And I think that when you first begin, it's nice to have some guidelines because otherwise you wouldn't know at all what to do. I remember in graduate school learning about the good old 4R protocol, which it theoretically makes a lot of sense. And in some ways, that is still how I think about addressing GI problems. However, there's still so many other factors that need to be taken into consideration when you're going to start to use a protocol and why somebody may or may not respond to that. So it's nice to have as kind of like a starting point. But then when you do begin to realize just how individual each person is, that has to be highly tailored to the individual. Gotcha. And just for our listeners out there, real quick, tell us what the 4-Hour Program oh, is. Oh, yes. <laughs> so we're looking to remove offending substances. A lot of times that's foods. We're looking to replace, and usually that's like digestive enzymes. If you have GI issues, a lot of times those enzymes are you know, at a level that's too low to actually help digest your food. You're looking to repopulate, and this is usually referring to probiotics. And then lastly, you're looking to repair, and this is the intestinal lining. There are many protocols out there to do this, but again, there's just so much more nuance based on what other issues that the client may have that are outside of the gastrointestinal system. Gotcha. And I'm pretty stoked here to talk about some of the GI tract stuff. As those of you who are listening and, and we had talked about kind of in the show primer is that we're talking about this concept of the gastrointestinal tract and in particular inflammation. And as this relates to a variety of health conditions outside of obviously my focus is talking about pain a lot with people, but it's definitely related to a lot of things. Let's talk real quick about this because, you know, my disdain for generalized language and words, and we hear this word in particular, of course, we're looking at social media, media outlets, and so forth, that this word inflammation is constantly thrown out, right? So everybody's inflamed. Everybody's got inflammation. And in my head, when I hear the word inflammation, I like to think about a picture in my head, like if somebody rolls an ankle or something like that, and it swells up and it gets really inflamed. 
And obviously there's a lot of biochemical stuff that's going on in the background that kind of is a result of that. And that's acute inflammation, right? This inflammation that goes to stimulate healing and all of this other kind of stuff. But when you're talking about inflammation, we're talking about more of an acute inflammation. We're also got to talk about chronic inflammation. What is inflammation actually in the body in your interpretation of that? And what is actually happening when somebody is inflamed? Yeah, that's a great question. Inflammation is the way that the immune system responds to threats or insults. And I think most of us would think that's either an injury or it's an infection. But there are many other factors that can cause the immune system to have an inflammatory response. And there absolutely is a difference between acute and chronic inflammation. What I deal mostly is with chronic inflammation. When I'm thinking about that from a nutritional standpoint, there are basically two ways I think about this. One is that the foods that you eat are either going to have pro-inflammatory effects or they're going to have anti-inflammatory effects. When we think about pro-inflammatory effects, there's a number of reasons why a food could do this. And I think what's particularly tricky is that a healthy food could potentially be pro-inflammatory. This may be because there's an acquired sensitivity to the food. It could be because of some compounds that are found in the food. For instance, if something was very high in lectins, we know that that is a type of protein in a food that can be highly inflammatory. So there's a number of reasons why foods and beverages and compounds in foods can cause inflammation. But we also have those foods that are anti-inflammatory. And these are foods that tend to possess certain types of chemicals that quench the inflammatory response. EPA and DHA from fish oil, that's one most people know about. Or for instance, curcumin from turmeric, that's another anti-inflammatory compound. When I'm thinking about diet, though, what I actually focus on more so is removing offending substances as opposed to adding in anti-inflammatory because clinically I see that it makes a much bigger difference. When you remove the source of the inflammation, the body actually has the capacity to do what it's designed to do, which is to heal. That's the food part, but then we have this other piece, which is your microbiome. What the microbiome is, is it's the trillions of cells that live on and within you. And the balance of that microbiota can either be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, depending on whether there's an overgrowth of certain phyla or species, or if you have more of an anti-inflammatory microbiome, there may be certain species that are producing beneficial compounds like short-chain fatty acids. When we think about the microbiome, this is something that is occurring 24-7. Your microbiome is either secreting inflammatory or anti-inflammatory substances, whereas with foods, this is every time you eat. Both have the potential to keep you in an inflamed state because they're occurring either all the time or intermittently through the day. Gotcha. So I'm hearing a couple of things here. So number one, I feel like the approach is obviously shooting a little bit of a hole in this concept of you could just have two lists of foods that we see on Instagram all the time. Eat all of these anti-inflammatory foods, don't eat these pro-inflammatory foods, and you're good to go. So it sounds like, I mean, that is really, I mean, some probably to some degree, it's you can universally generalize to some degree, right? But on an individual basis, that concept starts to fall apart a little bit. It truly does. Um, And never before has this been so obvious to me is when I started using a test that we use at my clinic, um, at Lifespan Medicine, that is, it's our proprietary test where we genetically test people to determine which foods are compatible or incompatible for them. Foods that are considered incompatible tend to have these pro-inflammatory effects. 
And they can be very healthy foods that may be on that list that you just mentioned that are considered anti-inflammatory. So it could be kale or blueberries or pomegranate. Those foods, while they may possess anti-inflammatory properties, if it's triggering an immune response in your body that produces inflammation, that would trump the fact that there's anti-inflammatory compounds in the food. That's super interesting. So, you know, now we start to look at it, and I hope those of you out there are listening and is kind of hearing this concept in that, you know, a lot of these approaches that we see with diets in particular that are usually excluding certain food groups or certain components within food are kind of thought to be universally anti-inflammatory or certain diets they tell you to avoid that are universally pro-inflammatory. And kind of what we're getting at here is it seems like that is generally untrue when it comes down to dealing with the individual. And in particular, I mean, I can't imagine how many people I've run into over the years who've tried lots of different types of diets and they don't ever seem to get the results that they want by eliminating larger food groups, right? Or maybe they say, well, I don't get it. I cut out all the junk out of my diet. I'm eating healthy proteins. I am staying away from bad fats. I'm not eating too many sweets. And I'm still having this problem with rampant inflammation. So you're saying that this pretty much can be one of the causes. They could be eating a technically healthy diet, but literally be eating a lot of stuff that's just continuing to drive inflammation. Yes, that's true. I can say, though, that if somebody is following what we would consider a generalized pro-inflammatory diet, so to your point, maybe some fats that are particularly inflammatory, like trans fats, or the diet is extremely high in refined sugar, you're probably going to get some benefits by cutting those things out. But then I most certainly have the clients who are eating very, very well, I mean, textbook perfect, and they still have inflammatory-based issues. I got a quick question, though, because I'm super curious. What's the most ridiculous thing in terms of a food we generally consider to be healthy that you found it ended up being like super inflammatory for an individual and it was kind of shocking? I think pomegranate. Wow. That is such a health-promoting food in general. The number of compounds in that particular fruit that are polyphenolic, meaning they have these beneficial compounds that reduce inflammation, reduce oxidative stress. And do a lot of other beneficial things, like keep your blood vessels nice and supple. There are people who don't tolerate them for one reason or another. And I've had certain cases where I've had clients who have had that show up on their incompatible list, and the removal of that tends to produce benefits. Come on now, it's an antioxidant. It's got to be healthy for you. It's got to be. It's got to be. Saw it on social media. All right, so let's circle back around to another point that I thought was really important. The idea that removing things was far more powerful or potent than adding things. And, you know, I found this in my practice and working with people with pain, especially with athletes and so forth and people who like to train a lot, let's say not to pick on any discipline, but let's say CrossFit because it's fairly aggressive and people have to oftentimes work through a lot of discomfort with complex movements and so forth. But if they're doing a movement that's repetitively aggravating something, whether it's their back or their rotator cuff and so forth, I can't kind of fix them through that by just doing massage work or giving them corrective exercises if they keep going out and stressing that joint or those tissues because that keeps driving the inflammation and the nerve sensitivity and so forth. So I imagine we're talking about the same thing here. So it's very hard to put out the fire when the fire is kind of constantly being aggravated and lit and provoked, right? And fanned. Kind of like, and this leads me to this next question that I have, which is the nutrition field, I mean, there's the food component, but there's also this unbelievable market that is driven by selling supplements. 
And a lot of them are for kind of like trying to replace the idea of medications, right? It's a this for that kind of approach. So we see this whole classification of supplements that are used for anti-inflammation. And I get people that ask me that a lot. Should I be taking enzymes? Should I be taking turmeric? All these different things that we know are generally anti-inflammatory properties. What are your thoughts on that? When mm -hmm. people come to see you and you know they may not be taking care of their diet, or maybe they are, and they're dousing themselves with these anti-inflammatory supplements, do they work? To what degree? What has been your experience with them? Early on in my career, when I was much more green, I liked to use a lot of those compounds because theoretically and based on the research, they work. So of course they should help reduce the pain experience. And yet that's not what I ended up seeing. In fact, it would a lot of times cause frustration because a client had increased their hope that this would work. They'd spent money on these supplements only to find out there was absolutely no benefit from taking it. It's not that they don't work. It's that they have to be used in the right context. With a nutrition plan that is personalized for the individual where you're reducing these inflammatory compounds and you're adding in anti-inflammatory compounds, yes, you could have a synergistic effect, but you could never possibly override inflammation that's coming in constantly with some supplements. That's the analogy of putting out a house fire with a garden hose. Yeah. And that makes total sense. And we see it a lot. I mean, and again, it's the supplement industry is just one of those things that I think tends to kind of irk us the most is that, you know, especially when I work with a lot of complex pain conditions, you work with a lot of different complex kind of gastrointestinal conditions and inflammatory conditions, and people walk in with this and they're just kind of sold the bill of goods that they're just going to be able to take these supplements and that's going to fix their issue. But really, it sounds like we got to get to the root cause. Yeah. We got to figure out what is fanning the flames of that inflammation. And one of the things that you talked about there, uh, which I want to go back to again, is the concept of the microbiome. Again, this is becoming a super hot topic, right? Everybody's talking about gut health. Everybody's talking about inflammation in the gut. And I got a lot of questions around this. But before I get into that, I do want to jump back to talking about this whole concept of inflammation and that how that contributes to pain. I got into nutrition early on in my career, number one, because I had good mentors who told me, hey, you got to look at this stuff with people. If they're really inflamed, they got a lot of things going on physiologically or biochemically. It's going to be hard sometimes to get them better. And so, you know, I did delve into it. I felt learned a lot about nutrition. But the idea here is, is that what is the connection in particular to these types of dietary problems and pain? I found that when I started looking into that stuff, there were lots of nutritionists, naturopaths and so forth who were working with people and were doing nutrition and lifestyle kind of modification with people. And they were able to get people out of pain. And I think that was probably the most interesting point to me when I learned that because at the time I was so structurally biomechanically based. I thought about movement, I thought about joints and muscles and so forth. So I was accustomed to working with things as pain as being driven by that, but there's so many other things that affect pain. So I'd imagine that throughout lots of different types of cases, I would imagine things that are known to not be so structurally oriented. I don't know, things like gout and so forth. When people have pain, what has been your experience in working with people with chronic pain on the nutritional side that maybe they hadn't gotten better using these kind of more traditional structural models that you were able to help them with nutritional approaches and eliminating perhaps inflammation and pain? Yes. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that lead to reduction of pain from nutritional changes. And one of these is not actually related to the biochemistry, but it's about what happens when someone makes dietary changes. 
dietary changes require active participation. In order to be able to follow a plan, you have to change the way you think about the way you eat, the way you shop, the way you dine, the way that you interact with other people. Many, many aspects of one's life is shifting when they're changing their diet. Sometimes these changes alone shift someone's self-concept. They shift their stress. So there's more global changes that are happening that change the way that the brain even interprets the pain experience. Sometimes there absolutely are, though, biochemical reasons why somebody experiences pain. The one I see the most often is related to visceral hypersensitivity, where someone has had a lot of inflammation in their gastrointestinal tract, and now everything they eat sort of causes discomfort because those nerves are so overactive. It's not even sometimes necessarily the food itself, but it's because the nerves have become so sensitive. There are also pre-existing issues that sometimes somebody has. For instance, if someone's histamine intolerant, they're just going to have a lot stronger reactions. And pain is such a common experience of overproducing histamine. So there's a number of reasons why pain can occur and a number of reasons why it can get better that are sometimes even independent of the foods that someone is eating or not. Super interesting. Okay. So, you know, we have all of these different things like visceral hypersensitivity, histamine intolerance, right? And then we've got this whole area of the gut. Are these things all intertwined together when we're talking about what we say, uh, the microbiome in particular? How does all of that kind of come together? Everything is connected. None of these situations, these imbalances are operating independently of another system. The biggest crosstalk is between the microbiome and the rest of the body, but particularly between the microbiome and the brain. So we have a direct route by which the brain and your gut are connected through your vagus nerve. And this is why if someone, for instance, has experienced a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, they can develop GI issues. In particular, one of the, the um, conditions I see is SIBO because it impairs someone's motility. But it can also go the other way around where there can be issues in the microbiome that actually affect someone's neurochemistry. And so in general, the more imbalanced the microbiome, the more imbalanced the brain chemistry. And we see mood-based disorders like depression and anxiety. Sometimes there are issues like OCD. A lot of my clients report actually fatigue and brain fog because of that connection between the brain and the microbiome. So basically, just a simple head injury, a concussion or something like that, depending on how severe that is, of course, can actually trigger some of these microbiome changes through the nervous system. Correct. So I guarantee you that nobody is even considering that sort of situation, right? And then it just seems like, oh, these things weren't related. I had a major concussion and then, oh, you know, I started developing GI tract problems and no connection between Mm -hmm. those two things, right? Unless you ask. And then all of a sudden the pieces start to come together and they're like, oh, actually my symptoms did start to occur several months after having a TBI. Of course. Of course. A good history makes all the difference, right? Mm -hmm. I have another question and something that's been kind of like something I've considered for a long time. And I have clients that ask me and so forth. One thing that I see a lot of is when people come in and they have lower back pain in particular, it's often, or knee pain, these are very common. Their pain issues are oftentimes blamed on having excess body fat or being overweight. I think that my experience has been 
that people can certainly reduce pain or you know get out of pain or manage their pain quite a bit without necessarily having to lose a lot of weight. So I'm always just kind of like shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know, because to me, pain is a lot of warning system in the central nervous system that tell us we have to do something, something's going on. But I don't know if that alarm is generally set off by being overweight. I mean, certainly if somebody has back problems or knee problems, if they need to lose 20, 30 pounds, that's carrying around a little less weight on their joints, may make those tissues less sensitive, less pain, et cetera. But my question is to you is how we look at being overweight, having excess body fat in particular, because we're generally talking about the same thing. Is that related to inflammation? And I know a lot of people will have that question is they're saying just having excess weight, does that mean you're inflamed? I know this is probably a big topic, but I'd love to know your, your input on this. I would say yes and no. I certainly have clients who have a low or normal BMI who have a lot of pain. And I also have clients who have a high level of body fat that do not have any pain at all. There's two things I think about. One is it depends on the metabolic health of the individual. If there's somebody who has, let's say, uncontrolled blood sugar, they're going to be producing a lot of what's called advanced glycation end products, AGEs. These compounds have a way of producing a lot of inflammation in the body. Same with lipid peroxides. These are lipids that become oxidized and can also cause inflammation. The metabolic health seems to be a little bit more important, but then we have this other thing to consider, which is visceral fat. Visceral fat is not the fat that you can see or pinch. It's the fat that is around organs, and it's a highly inflammatory type of fat. So it's constantly releasing inflammatory chemicals. We also know that the higher the visceral fat, the increased risk of all-cause mortality. I actually do look at someone's visceral fat to get a sense for how much they have and whether or not that may be a contributing factor. Can we look at how much visceral fat somebody has and basically guesstimate how much inflammation they have? Yes, and it concerns me. For instance, if I see someone who's actually relatively lean and they have a high amount of visceral fat, and let's say, because if you use a DEXA, you can see where that fat is located, if it's particularly like around the liver, and most people have heard of fatty liver, we know there's metabolic disturbances. Okay, now DEXA is just a specific kind of body fat testing tool yes. that can measure your, your visceral fat. So of course, I'm going to get a million questions on that. So would like, first of all, can we measure visceral fat? How do we do that? DEXA, we'll put it in the show notes so that people have access to seeing what that is. What about some of these other things? And this kind of leads into the next question I have is, we talk about inflammation. There are certain indications that there's inflammation. How do we measure inflammation? Like when you look at lab tests and you look at a bazillion labs, how do you determine whether somebody's inflamed? Are there certain lab markers and so forth that you're going to kind of use as prediction or things that hit the nail on the head? Absolutely. There are ways to assess through laboratory testing if somebody has inflammation. But before I kind of go into that, it's worth noting that I absolutely have clients who present with inflammatory conditions that have perfect labs. So they may actually have an inflammatory condition like rheumatoid arthritis, and there's nothing that shows up on the labs that would actually indicate that. When I do look at labs, so there are certain markers that are directly associated with inflammation, and that might be like an HSCRP, an ESR, fibrinogen, um, homocysteine, uric acid. And then we have other markers that if elevated, we know there's inflammation. So for instance, if somebody had high liver enzymes, 
there's something that's causing enough inflammation to the hepatocytes or the liver cells that's causing them to burst and release enzymes into the bloodstream. We have a number of ways of looking at this, but it's not always going to be the way of determining whether or not somebody has inflammation. That is really tricky because that, I I would imagine, you know, seeing people that clearly have inflammation issues and then how many times they end up going to the doctor and everything looks fine and nobody even bothers to look any further. I would imagine you see that a lot. It's the most frustrating thing for anyone to get lab tests back that say you're perfectly normal and you know you're not. You don't feel well. You feel inflamed. Everything hurts. That's why we always have to take into consideration the clinical picture in addition to the labs, because we don't treat labs. We treat a human being. I'm on board with that, absolutely. And people come in and they've been dismissed by doctors because they've had x-rays done, they've had MRIs done. There's technically nothing wrong, but the person is in here saying, I'm in pain, I need help. We kind of look at things from getting clues. Maybe there's some little bit of arthritis or degeneration on their x-rays or MRIs, and maybe there's some muscle imbalances and so forth, but we really can't account for what the person is experiencing. So we obviously have to deal with the person. We have to trust that what they're experiencing is what they're experiencing and try to work through that. But that is a very tricky area, which is running lots of labs. I'm sure those of you out there who have looked for this stuff run maybe in some cases thousands of dollars of laboratory tests trying to determine what's going on and you get clues, but nothing that's definitive. Well, another thing that's worth pointing out is there are times when someone may seem like they're in relatively good health, because I do see those individuals as well, those who are kind of looking to optimize. And the labs come back and there's a lot of evidence of inflammation. So we also know that this process can be silent and asymptomatic. But this is important because no condition or disease just comes up out of nowhere. There's always a development that's occurring over the course of years. Using those labs can help bring clues early on that the way you're living, what you're eating, something is not working for you. And that's where they can sometimes be a wake-up call and it's time to course correct. Good, good. And definitely I'm sure everybody out there is going to be interested in what those labs are going to be. So we'll add in some resources here at the end as well. Let's jump to this next topic. And, you know, we're talking about inflammation. We kind of brought up the supplement end of things. But there's this whole other element to deal with, and this is probably going to launch right into the gut discussion, which is how do a lot of people deal with inflammation on a daily basis? I don't know what the statistics are, if it's still true or not, but I remember reading somewhere that something like 80% of Americans were at least on one prescription medication. So they're on something, Um, but that's on prescription medications. I mean, how many more people are using over-the-counter stuff? And in particular, when they're dealing with pain, you know, we walk down that pain aisle and we're just seeing loaded up aisles of anti-inflammatories. Start looking at Tylenol, ibuprofen, which is another big one. And some of these belong in the category of NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. See a lot of people, and I think people are a little bit more wise to it these days of not constantly gobbling down anti-inflammatories on a regular basis. I have to imagine that that is not a good thing, but curious what this actually does to people when they're chomping down on anti-inflammatories on a regular basis. It's really the chronic use of these NSAIDs that's problematic. And there's a lot of reasons why, but the big one is that, let's just take ibuprofen. It erodes the gut lining. You have this lining that's only one cell thick, and it's easily damaged by many things, including NSAIDs. Once that lining has been eroded, now unfortunately substances that are normally contained within the gut lumen start to sneak through, they get into the bloodstream. 
once they're in the bloodstream, the immune system goes a little crazy. It's like, why is this here? It starts overreacting and produces inflammation. Once that gut lining has been broken down, everything starts to go a little bit awry. We also start to see that once the gut lining is broken down, there also is a correlation with the blood-brain barrier. So if you have a leaky gut, that's another name for having a permeable intestinal lining, it's also common to have a leaky brain, where now we're getting more inflammation in the brain and causing neurological-based symptoms. Okay, so that's a lot, and that sounds pretty bad. Uh, Those of you out there that constantly on the anti-inflammatory train here, it might be a good idea to start kind of seeking out the help to getting to the root cause of the problem versus just trying to douse it with some of these over-the-counter medications because it's, it essentially sounds like it's going to destroy your gut. So once we start to destroy the gut and we break down the lining and we got all these issues, I got to imagine this is exactly where we start to see some significant changes in the microbiota. And so that leads into my next question and something that you clearly have a lot of expertise in dealing with this hot topic called SIBO. Tell us a little bit about what SIBO is and what its role is and how inflammation is being driven out of SIBO and what some of the challenges that we see with this are. And the other thing is, how common is it? Earlier, when I, again, when I kind of first started in my career, I started to see a couple of cases of SIBO. And what I remember, and I think why I became so interested in this, is that it was really difficult to help these people get better. And we now know that about two-thirds of cases are refractory, so meaning the symptoms are going to keep coming back after treatment. What SIBO is, is it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and this occurs when you have a basically a motility-based issue. In your small intestine, there is something called the migrating motor complex, and what it does is it sweeps bacteria down from the small intestine into the large intestine. When this isn't working properly, you start to get an accumulation of bacteria in the small intestine. So normally you have about 10 to the third population of bacteria in the small intestine. And when that starts to get up to 10 to the sixth, 10 to the seventh, you have way too much bacteria in the wrong spot. And what happens is these bacteria, they have a preferred fuel source, which is carbohydrates. When an individual with SIBO eats carbohydrates, the bacteria take those carbohydrates and they produce gases like hydrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide. So this is unpleasant if you're producing a lot of gas. Obviously, you're going to experience gas. You may have abdominal bloating. This is where the abdominal wall distends like a balloon, and it's going to change bowel function, either constipation or diarrhea, depending on the type of gas that you're producing. The second piece is that these gases can be pretty noxious. The gases themselves have an effect, usually a pro-inflammatory effect, and this is why we see strong connections between SIBO and conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and interstitial cystitis, even psoriasis. We know then once SIBO has begun, there's going to be bigger or more broader implications that are outside of the gastrointestinal tract. Now, I'm guessing that there's not going to be a simple dietary fix for this. We just go on a low-carb diet, and then that ends the SIBO? The diet actually does not treat SIBO at all. It is palliative. So we provide recommendations to reduce suffering. So we take out very specific types of carbohydrates to prevent that fermentation and gas production, but that is not treating the underlying issue. In fact, SIBO isn't the underlying issue. It's the motility. So not only do you have to actually treat the SIBO itself, but you need to figure out why it is occurring in the first place. 
And this is why I think two-thirds of cases are refractory. It's because the underlying condition hasn't been resolved. If we go back to the TBI, we know that there's going to be a motility issue. For somebody who has that kind of issue, they're going to be using kind of like vagal retraining to stimulate that long nerve that goes between the base of the brain and the GI tract. Or sometimes, I mean, what I see most common is somebody had food poisoning. If they have post-infectious, what's called IBS, that is a lot of times SIBO, the migrating motor complex, the um, interstitial cells of Cajal that are kind of regulating that thing, they're damaged. And so there's almost like a paralysis of those nerves. And for somebody like that, they would require lifelong prokinetics to be able to stimulate proper motility. Wow. And what I'm also kind of, I can't help but to think about this is that these situations and those, we're going to be doing a lot of different podcasts on different aspects of chronic pain. But one in particular is this state that the nervous system gets basically stuck in that is like a hypervigilance. It's that sympathetic nervous system drive where we start to have a lot of sensitivity to different types of stimuli in the environment. We call this central sensitization. Conditions that are associated with that in particular, I think the one that's the biggest is fibromyalgia, which is people just have a lot of increased sensitivity to lots of stimuli. It's variable. And I think it's been obviously a focus of looking at some of these mechanisms in the body that can sustain that hypersensitivity. And one of them in particular is looking at the vagus nerve because it seems to be so related to so much stuff. We know that various breathing techniques like the Wim Hof method, those you may be familiar with this, yogic breathing, all these sorts of things, these breathing techniques are meant to assist with modulating a vagal tone. And you have some tricks with that as well. We'll talk about that probably having you back on another episode. But these things are all kind of getting down to the same thing, which is this complex interaction between things like the gut, the nervous system, the brain. And we haven't even talked that much about some of these metabolic aspects, but all of this stuff is interrelated, probably in some cases in particular, so complexly that it's hard to figure out what the root cause of the problem is. That's correct. Yeah, for sure. And so when I work with clients, something I'm really trying to do is impress on them that we want to identify these underlying factors. So we have underlying factors, but the way that I tend to think about this is from a functional medicine standpoint where there are antecedents, there are sometimes factors that have made somebody more predisposed to a certain condition. There's actually a cause. So we'll use the post-infectious IBS. There was a food poisoning. We have mediators. A great example of that is the stress response itself that kind of keeps a condition stuck. And then we have triggers. So there may be actual foods that cause a trigger, or there may be any other kind of substances that cause the symptoms to flare up. So we're always trying to look at it through that lens and how do we reduce triggers and mediators and actually resolve the underlying condition that caused it in the first place. Certainly sounds like it takes a little bit of work. It sure does. It's like solving a puzzle. Yeah, this is not going to be a simple fix. I mean, I think I had read, and I had sent you this a long time ago for our listeners, I always love to poke fun at things and found, I think, a book that was like, Heal Your SIBO in 20 Days. And I had to laugh at that because that just sounded ridiculous. And of course, I'm sure they meant it off like as a jump off point and educating people. But I seriously doubt you're going to heal your SIBO in 20 days, yeah? Well, in large part, we really have to recondition the nervous system. And that takes time. And it's so different depending on the individual what's going to work. We know that there are those who respond very, very well to meditation. For others, that doesn't seem to help, and they need maybe a more context-specific approach. What I see the most often is 
there is a huge fear of symptoms. And when those symptoms occur, it causes immediate hypervigilance, concern, worry that this is going to go from bad to worse. And then that, of course, perpetuates this vicious cycle. And so it's going to take time to learn strategies for de-stimulating and training your brain that it's okay. And in large part, that's, I think, learning how to neutralize your response to symptoms. Yeah, I'm clearly very biased on this because I'm a total fanboy of pain neuroscience education. For those of you who are not aware of this, it's just simply the idea that teaching people about pain and how pain works oftentimes can dramatically improve someone's symptoms because they feel less fear, they feel less worry when they understand what's going on. Again, and, and, and that's probably going to be just as potent on the other side, if not more, when people have some severe internal kind of stuff going on, these uh, inflammatory conditions, pain, gas, bloating, indigestion, et cetera, but yet all their laboratory tests are normal. And just not knowing what's going on and clearly feeling something is wrong, but being told that there's not something wrong is going to generate a scenario that's it's quite as bad. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. So we got to educate. Education is first. That's why we're doing this podcast here, by the way. All right, so let's uh, kind of move on here. One of the things that I want to talk about is kind of getting into some strategies. I know we could probably spend an entire another podcast episode just on this, but when you go about the process of working with somebody on dealing with their inflammatory issues, or let's say they present you with inflammation, how's the process work? I imagine you're going to run some tests on them. You're going to look at some stuff. What does this look like in clinically in person? Sure. This is where the biopsychosocial comes into play because human beings need motivation to make changes. And that looks different for every person. So sometimes information alone is enough. So that's where a laboratory test can come in. You see that you actually have this SIBO condition and then it's real. And for most people, it's a wake up call that, oh, something actually is wrong and I need to address this. For others, that's still not enough. There may be many reasons why for instance, if somebody's feeling miserable, generally their motivation to make changes is going to be low. It's very, very hard to make changes when your energy is low, when you don't have motivation, when you're not inspired. I try to figure out where someone is at motivationally so I can figure out what is the strategy to be able to get them to buy into this process. Now, I should say that when people come to work with me, they're generally pretty motivated to make changes. but when the rubber meets the road, that's where things get tricky. While theoretically it may seem easy to make these changes, once they get into it and they realize, oh, this is a little more challenging than I thought, I still need to have those insights early on so I can help keep them motivated to stay within the process. If I do suspect that someone has SIBO or any other GI condition, I'm most likely going to run a test unless it's just outside of someone's budget. And then I'm going to do everything possible just to use the good clinical picture to help treat that. But maybe it's even sometimes easier to give examples. For instance, I have a client who has ankylosing spondylitis, a very painful autoimmune condition. And from the start, he told me that he's not motivated to change his diet. However, he was, he kind of hit the end of the road where his physicians and other care members who are helping him they were at a dead end and nothing was working anymore. So he was still interested enough to entertain that nutrition can be playing a role, but said, unless these foods are going to kill me, I can't imagine not eating them. What I did to get his buy-in was I said, can we do a five-day experiment? 
And what I had him do is actually something very aggressive that I would not normally do, but I had him follow what's called an elemental diet. Now this can actually be something that, this is a little bit different because he has ankylosing spondylitis, but it can actually be a treatment for SIBO. The reason why I recommended it for him is it because it removes all dietary antigens. It eliminates the possibility that he would be eating something that could possibly be inflaming him. So I said, if after five days there's no improvements, we can just set nutrition aside and you can know that you at least gave an attempt to remove inflammatory compounds. After five days, his swelling and pain reduced by 90%. And at this point, now he's interested and he's feeling better. He had a little experiment several days later where he had eaten almonds and that had flared up his knee pain incredibly and it was back to being fully swollen. And for him, it was that cause and effect. It was an experiential change that made him realize, wow, these foods are actually causing me inflammation and once again confirmed nutrition's playing a pretty big role here. That's one example of something that I don't always do, but based on this particular individual, I did. Yeah, it sounds like, and you know, people can go through tons of different practitioners and go through different approaches, but sometimes it sounds like in order to kind of get some rapid changes, you've got to hit the nail on the head. And, you know, that's a, that's a lot of pressure as a health practitioner to be working with people who have been through, who spent a tremendous amount of time, money, energy, resources, and hope constantly going between different practitioners using different approaches, but they need a very specific thing. And I get, you know, I, I would imagine it's a hard sell at that point to tell somebody, hey, eating almonds is causing you problems or eating these, kind of, these healthy foods. And they're not going to want to do that. And especially things that they absolutely love. And again, another podcast episode by itself of the years that I've dealt with my own types of digestive issues. But it took a long time for me to start bending the way that I was doing things because I was stable doing what I, what I was doing. I was not getting better, but it was just, I was at least putting along. And, you know, to me, we always have that line where I make fun of, it's like, when you have to remove something from the diet, it's like the, it's all I have left, please don't take it from me sort of mentality. But, you know, there you go. I mean, that's, you can't uh, argue with that is going on and having this kind of condition that has just been plaguing you forever and finally actually feeling better. So that sounds, you know, that sounds amazing. And that's what we'd hope for everybody to walk in and, and have their first experience. Maybe it wouldn't be so magical though, because they wouldn't uh, maybe appreciate it that much having not gone to 10 different practitioners before. But Yeah, I would agree with that. Setting proper expectations up front is also very important. If the client knows what the process is going to be like, and that it actually is going to be a little bit challenging, but they're going to have someone like myself to walk with them and to be there to support them and guide them along the way. And also that setbacks are normal. It's a normal part of the process as well as resistance to change. And normally there's a reason why we're resistant to making changes. We've all got those things in our lives that we know probably aren't serving us, but we continue to do them anyway. Having somebody who's there to be able to just keep explaining and guiding and walking you through all of those issues makes the process at least a little bit more tolerable. Yeah. And that clearly takes working with practitioners that are highly motivated to keep learning, especially with a commitment to client and or patient outcomes, right? Because that keeps you growing and it keeps you expanding your resource set so that you can kind of get people there faster. So um, we're kind of getting to the end here. So I have uh, two more things to ask you. One thing in particular is I always like to ask, and I will make it my thing to ask, 
um, because I want to document all of these things because I'm sure you've got exciting things going on right now. But what are you working on right now that excites you, that is really forward thinking? You think that the field is going toward right now? What are we looking uh, out for on the horizon? What are you stoked about? Well, you know me, I'm very excitable <laughs> um, to the point where I just can't stop thinking about these things. There's two things that really excite me. One is that stool testing, I know everybody's favorite thing to do. It's come a long way <laughs> from good old cultures. Uh, we have these extremely advanced ways of assessing someone's microbiome, and that information is vital. It allows us to see precisely what the balance of these different species are and gives us tools to be a lot more precise. Without that, you're doing your best to kind of figure out, well, I think it's this or I think it's that. I think I could try this particular strain of probiotic or prebiotic. But when you can actually see, it just guides you in a much more precise way. That's something that's very exciting. And even more is... <laughs> Some of your listeners may have heard of FMT, which is fecal microbiota transplant. This is taking stool from one individual and transplanting into another, just as fun and appetizing as stool testing. However, this is usually for something very specific if somebody has a C. diff infection. What we've learned just recently, and there's some great new developments, is that we can now use that concept and deliver those microbes as well as the compounds that those microbes secrete in much easier ways. And so these are kind of called like postbiotics or parabiotics. And this is important because as I've been looking through some of uh, my clients' stool tests, I have clients who are actually missing entire phyla of bacteria and of course the species, subspecies that exist within that phyla. And once once this like species is gone or this entire phyla is gone, it, you, it can't come back. It's extinct. There's nothing that you can give them in terms of a probiotic or a prebiotic to bring back something that doesn't exist. This is very problematic because if this is an anti-inflammatory species that's doing something like making sure that that gut lining stays nice, the integrity stays really nice and protected, and we don't have that to do that kind of role, Somebody's going to just have a strong predisposition to a chronic leaky gut. And we need to be able to put these substances back into the GI tract so that they can repopulate. And so we're getting there. There are some new developments. So what I extracted from that is that we need to test people's poop. And then we need to find healthy poop and find a way to get that healthy poop into those people's bodies somehow. <laughs> Is you that, hit is the that nail on the head. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> wow. Uh, again, another episode on that one coming. It will be all about poop. So you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Stool testing and stool transplant is the future, but it is not as terrifying as it sounds, actually. And that's what she's trying to get at here. It's getting more advanced and uh, much better. Uh, so we'll leave that at that. Coming up to the end here, Nicole, how do listeners who are interested in services, information, and so forth, where do they find you? Where are you located at? I'm sure people will be beating down the door here to ask you questions and so forth. Where can they find you? Yes. So you can find me at the clinic at which I work, Lifespan Medicine, which is lifespanmedicine.com. Or you can find me personally at analyticalnutrition.com. All right. 
There you go. You can check her out there. I'm sure, like I said, she's got a lot of resources. I'll put a lot of things in the show notes here for some of the things that we talked about. This has been definitely a whopper of a session. And thank you so much, my beautiful and amazing wife, for joining me on this podcast here. I hope the listeners got a lot out of this and there is much more to come. So again, thank you so much, everybody. We will see you next time.